You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and I have the pleasure of being joined by University of Georgia professor Lenny Wells. Dr. Wells, welcome to Stories from Real Life. Thanks, Melvin. Great to be here with you. I'm glad to have you. Well, Lenny Wells is a professor of horticulture at the University of Georgia, where he conducts research on pecan production and helps pecan farmers with their problems. In addition, he grows pecans on his family's farm and writes when he can. So my first question for you is probably the most important one I can ask. Your response may prevent a civil war. <laughs> How do you pronounce the word that's spelled P-E-C-A-N? <laughs> well, I, I kind of knew that was coming. I think every interview I've ever given had asked me that question. But um, basically, I use both, really. It depends on where I am. If I am speaking to a a crowd, especially if it's like at a scientific meeting or something, I usually say pecan. If I'm working in the orchard, especially if I'm banging my knuckles raw on a piece of equipment or, or, you know, dragging limbs or something like that, it's pecan. (laughs) But the best, the best definition of that I ever heard was another pecan grower told me one time that, when they bring, you know, two or two fifty a pound to the grower, they're pecans. If they're bringing fifty cents a pound, they're pecans. <laughs> well, my I'm from Texas, and I say I've always said pecan. My wife is from Maryland, and she grew up saying pecan. Yeah. Until I told her that a pecan is like a porta potty. <laughs> yep. That's a pecan. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so now she doesn't call it that anymore. <laughs> I fixed her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So how do you begin working with pecans? Oh, it's kind of a long story. I had sort of an unorthodox route uh, to, to get here to, to this particular career path. Um, when I started college as an undergraduate, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. And I kind of floundered my whole first year, just enjoyed college life and <laughs> and uh didn't really have an idea what I wanted to do, but I, I took a biology class and I had always had a strong interest in, uh, you know, the natural world. And, but I never knew there were actually careers where you could actually spend your time, uh, studying that. So, um, end up becoming a biology major. And, and most of that was, um, sort of leaning towards the ecology side of it. Um, and then I went on to get a master's degree and, and I had planned to kind of go into more of the, like I said, the ecological side. I kind of wanted to study birds and, uh, and do research with birds. And, uh, but I had a, uh, and when I was working on my, starting my master's, I had a, a teaching assistantship and I just hated teaching. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> um, and, um, I had a professor, uh, come to me. And, 
offered me the opportunity to, to take a research assistantship where I didn't have to do any teaching. I just concentrated on my research. And, and uh, so I did that. And it was uh, in uh, it was studying uh, pine tip moths, which is a pest of, of pine trees. And so I did my master's research on that. That led to a, a Ph.D. Uh, work looking at uh, the biological control of cotton aphids or, or kind of integrating biological control into the regular farming system, uh, you know, looking at, at cotton aphids. Um, and then um, after that, I ended up taking a, a postdoc position here where I'm working now, uh, which is the same place I did my PhD research. Um, that postdoc position was was studying peanut diseases and the insect pests that transmit those diseases. Um, it was getting about time for that uh, postdoc to run out. I'd had a couple of job interviews, uh, as we may talk about later in, in another portion of this, but um, ended up taking, to make a long story short, ended up taking a, um, a position as a county extension agent in Albany, Georgia, um, which happens to be, uh, you know, and I get into these, into this with a little bit of trepidation, but, uh, you know, in Georgia, Albany is considered the pecan capital of the world. And I know it's not in Texas, <laughs> but, but, um, fired. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I started working with pecans there. And so most of my training with pecans kind of came, you know, just, with boots on the ground, you know, working with pecan farmers and those guys, you know, really are the ones that taught me about, about pecans. And then, um, we had been without someone in the position that I'm in now, uh, at the university of Georgia for probably five or six years at that point. And, um, so one thing led to another, and I ended up getting this this current position that I'm in uh, in the horticulture department, working working with pecans. And uh, actually, before that, while I was still a county extension agent, you know, I'm helping these pecan farmers, and and I'm I'm out there with them, and I'm, I'm looking at what they do, and and I started thinking to myself, you know, I, I think I could do that, <laughs> and um, and so. Um, my family had uh, or has a farm um, that was my great, uh, I guess my great great grandfather's farm. It's been in our family since the 1890s. And, um, you know, I had never uh, farmed on it. And my father had never farmed. My grandfather had never farmed there, at least as an adult. Um, the last one of us to, to farm that before I started was my great grandfather and um but anyway i decided to try planting some pecans and my dad at the time uh was open to that uh he he kind of helped help me kind of get going in that and uh so uh then it led into like i said ended up getting a, this position i'm in now so um you know that's kind of how i got into pecans and uh you know it's been great so 
you didn't, I would expect you to say you grew up with it. Your dad did this, your grandfather did this. So yep. this was your family, family's line of work and you just mm-hmm. carried on the tradition, but something completely different for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit, a little bit off the beaten path. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the, the pecan is a state nut of Alabama, Arkansas, California, Louisiana, and Texas. And it's also the state tree of my home state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And then my next, my question is two parts here. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it the Georgia state nut? And are they afraid they'll be beaten by Texas like they will be in football next year? Oh man, we don't want to go there. Do we? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, it is actually the state nut of Georgia. Okay, um, it's not the state tree, but it's the state nut. Um, but yeah, yeah, we in the, in the whole football thing. I mean, we'll find out when when fall rolls around. But uh, it'll it'll be an interesting year this year. <laughs> it, it will be. It, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm a little bit nervous. Actually, I'm a whole lot nervous, but yeah. Yeah. I'm still looking forward to it. But hey, as as long as y'all beat the Gators, that's all good. you care about. Huh? <laughs> and we need to have Atticus on here at the same time so we can yeah like, we need to roll him. him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we need, maybe we need to do another podcast with all three of us on here. Yes, that, that'll be season. funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to pecans real quick. So what what's so great about pecans? Oh man, well everything, Melvin. They're just uh, they're, they're just awesome. Um, I, I happen to agree. By, yeah. by the way, before you answer the question, I've got this some yeah. Texas native some pecans. Texas pecans. Yeah. Some Pawnee pecans. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know that. Species. Oh yeah. Great variety. But yeah, I mean pecans are just one of the really to me one of the true national treasures of north america i mean they're they're native to north america you know they grow um their native range is extends from oaxaca mexico all the way up you know through the river systems of texas into the mississippi river and its tributaries all the way up to i think clinton iowa is uh mm-hmm. as far north as, as they're found you know in a native capacity but um you know, they're just incredible trees. Um, really, their 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 awesomeness is twofold. Basically, I mean, you've got the nut, which which of course of course tastes great. And if anybody out there hasn't had a fresh pecan, then you really don't know what they're supposed to taste like. Um, you have to have one that that's that's pretty fresh to really get that taste of what a, what a true pecan is. But I mean, they're, they're full of vitamins, full of nutrients. They're, they're good for the heart. They're good for cholesterol levels. They actually lower those, your bad cholesterol and raises your good cholesterol. Um, this, you know, they lower blood pressure. They've got anti-inflammatory properties to them. They're full of antioxidants. Um, and they come in this, cool little container that you can just put in your pocket and carry around and pull out to eat when you get ready. Um, but, uh, you know, then there's the tree, which just has an incredible amount of diversity to it. Um, you know, we talked about that range that they have. And of course, across that range, they have, you know, they're exposed to just a wide array of environment, environmental conditions and so they've adapted to a wide range of conditions, um, and that creates that diversity. Um, you know, you know, they're in Texas along those all those rivers in Texas. You know, um, all those native trees. You know, every one of them in those river bottoms is, uh, you know, 
that's where the diversity comes from because they're all different. Um, you know, there's over a thousand different pecan varieties out there now. Um, and, and most of these, you know, came from those native trees that somebody found a tree and liked the way it looked, liked the way it produced, liked the nut it produced. And so they ended up vegetatively propagating these through grafting and all that to create the varieties that we have now. Um, and as I said, there's over a thousand different varieties of them. Um, How many anyway, of those have you worked with or eaten? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know exactly. Uh, probably not near as many as you would think. I would say probably less than a less than 100. Um, you know, and it's interesting in the where pecans are grown along that whole southern tier of states in the U.S. Um, you know, in West Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, they basically grow about three different varieties, which are the Western Sly, Wichita, and then they're starting to grow some Pawnee now. Um, here in the southeast, um, we grow about, commonly grow about 20 different varieties. Um, and the same, same would go, you know, for East Texas and into Central Texas. A lot more varieties there grown than you would see in those more arid regions. Um, but, you know, and then as, as far as the tree goes too, you know, as a form of ag or as a form of agriculture, pecan trees are actually good for the land. Um, the soils, you know, are not tilled, um, which helps the soil. Uh, they're a perennial crop, which has a lot of benefits and, and, you know, you're, they're, they're constantly dropping leaves and debris and bark and sticks and that improves the soil over time. Um, I actually had a, a graduate student uh, a couple of years ago who we, we did a study we were looking at to actually see how pecan orchards improved the soil over time. And uh, the longer this piece of land, you know, is in a pecan orchard, how much does the soil improve? And we basically saw that, you know, the first six years, five or six years, there's a little bit of change, but not, not really that much different from just being row crop land. Um, once you get to over 10 years, there's a pretty big jump in, uh, in the improvement of the soil. And then when you get, you know, trees that are 20 years and older, that soil is dramatically different and dramatically improved uh, in terms of soil quality um, from, say, what you'd have in just a conventionally tilled row crop field. Um, you know, so they're, they're great for improving what the is, soil. What is row crop? Is that rotational? Yeah, that would that would be your annual crops like around here. That would be cotton, peanuts, corn, soybeans, that type okay. of thing. Okay. Um, yeah, and so um, you know, in a lot of those systems like that, you know, you're talking about monocultures where you've got one species pretty much growing in that field. Well, in a pecan orchard, you know, you've got more than one species. Uh, you've got pecan trees that are out there, but then you've got the grass that's growing between the tree rows. A lot of times we'll have clover. You'll have various weeds that are going to come up uh, no matter what you do. <laughs> they're going to be out there. Um, and a lot of these, you know, as long as they're in between the tree rows, they're, they're great. They're helping. 
um, and just the tree structure itself, you know, being a tree and being such a big vertical woody thing that's got all these grooves and uh, crevices in the bark and all that, you've got a lot of niches there. So you've got a lot of different micro habitats that, that things can live in. And pecans are highly biodiverse. I mean, they've, um, I think one, there was one year, I think it was like 2012. And this kind of stems from some of my interest going back to, to the early days of my undergraduate biology. So I started, uh, you know, I go in a lot of pecan orchards all year long, my own and a lot of other orchards. And so I started just kind of keeping a little tally, keeping track of uh, all the different species that I saw in the orchards that year. And I forget what it was. I mean, it was, gosh, you know, I want to say 140-something different species that I saw um, of all different kinds, you know, plants, animals, insects, you know, a little bit of everything. But... um, just birds alone, I think there were like 40-something species of birds in, that I saw in pecan orchards. Um, and actually, there was a study from Texas that shows that um, pecan orchards are one of the most highly desirable habitats for spiders, which that may scare a lot of people off. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there were about 100 and I think it was 181 different species of spiders in, in pecan orchards in Texas. Wow. So, um, that's just okay, spiders. That's the reason to stay away from that. And the biggest, the biggest <laughs> yeah. spiders I've ever seen in my life were in an okra field. Wow. And I remember going there with my, my dad to his uncle's farm, which is where they grew up. My dad's family grew up. Yeah. And my dad made me do all kinds of stuff when I was a kid to teach me the <laughs> lesson. So yeah. like pick okra, which is very prickly. You have to wear gloves and I hated yeah. it. But I saw like spiders, the hand, the size of your hand, mm. they were, they were huge. And so I don't eat okra. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, how many pounds of pecans are harvested a year in the United oh, States? Oh, goodness. It, it, it varies from one year to the next because with pecans, you've got, you know, alternate bearing where they'll have a heavy crop one year, less of a crop the next year. But in general, in the U.S., um, we produce about 300 million pounds of pecans a year. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And they're only grown in North America? No, they're, they're actually native, grown. As a native? As a, as a native, yes. They're, they're native to North America. Uh, but wow. commercially, they're grown, uh, well, you know, U.S. and Mexico are the top two producers, each producing about 300 million pounds. Um, then the next largest producer is South Africa. Um, hmm. okay. and then you've got, and that's somewhere around 40 million pounds, I think. Um, after that, you've got probably Australia. And then there's a lot of, there's a lot of pecans currently being planted in South America, then in Argentina, Brazil, um, Uruguay, Peru, um, and then there's there's also a few in in Europe. There's some in China, um, you know. So pretty much every continent 
continent now except for Antarctica has pecans growing in them. So. Wow. So I only have a couple more questions about pecans, and then we'll move on to another subject. All right. But what do you think are the best types of pecans for, for pecan pies? And that's, that's hmm. I mean, I love pecans, but yep. that's their, that's why they were put on earth. Yeah. <laughs> to, <laughs> to fill pie crust. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, if you, if you're, if you want to eat a pie, you want something that's got, that's got a lot of, you know, a lot of buttery, oily, you know, just some bulk there to it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, Elliot's to me, uh, are some of the best, best ones to use there. There it's a small nut, but it's pretty plump and fat and it's got a, it's got a high oil content and it's got a very buttery taste to it. Um, that's my favorite. Um, but you know, any the best ones have, would have a high oil, oil content, but okay, you know, there's a lot right, of them out there. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had Elliot pecans, at least not that I know of. Yeah, Pawnee yep. Pawnees are definitely my my favorite ones. Yeah, Pawnees. Uh, what about for what about for snacking? What what would you recommend for that? Uh, I like Elliot's for that too, but I mean, <laughs> um, you know, there's one here called an eastern sly we just call it sly um there's a western sly also but it's a different different variety um but it has a really high oil content and, and for years uh, throughout you know all the mid 20th century uh it was kind of the standard nut for quality uh, at least here in the southeast um because it has such a high oil content. It has a really thin shell. If you're familiar with the term paper shell, that's mm-hmm. kind of where it comes from, was from, from okay. that variety, because it had such a thin shell. Um, they're really good to snack on. Pawnees are great to snack on. Uh, pretty much any of them, you put put uh, some salt on them and roast them with some, some olive oil or something on them, and they're, they're pretty good. <laughs> I've, I've never roasted them. I've, obviously, I've had like roasted with cinnamon and stuff at Bucky's. Oh yeah, but yep. I just crack them and eat them from the shell. Yep. There is a a really nice pecan farm near Austin where I usually I usually go, and they've mm-hmm. they've got about fifty different varieties of pecans there. Yeah, and all all with the names of Native American Native American tribes. Yeah, so Pompani yeah, well, being one of them. Mm-hmm. And the, all those all those varieties with those Native American tribe names. Those are varieties that were developed by the USDA, and, uh, and okay. so they kind of, you know, decided early on when they released a variety they were going to use a Native American name for it, which I okay. think is great. Yeah. That is that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, so let's transition to your writing habits. What tell us about what led <laughs> you to to um, go into writing? Well. Um, I've always loved to read. That tends to be how most people who write get into writing. Um, and um, probably somewhat, my wife would definitely say I'm I'm obsessive about it. Um, <laughs> you know, you go into my house and there's like stacks of books everywhere, which drives her crazy. Um, and but I've, I've I'm to the point now where I. I almost always have to have like at least one fiction book and one nonfiction book going at the same time. If I don't, if I get down, 
if I just, you know, I finish one of those and I've still got the other one there to read, I'm okay. But if I ever like get, if I finish reading them both and I don't have something else lined up to start, it's like, I don't know. I kind of start wigging out or just, (laughs) I don't feel right. (laughs) Life gets off track. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I started keeping a, a journal sometime around 1995 or so. Uh, it was about a year after my mom passed away. And I guess I was just kind oh, yeah. of, uh, you know, I, I saw really for the first time how short life was because she was really young. She was 41 when she passed away. Wow. I'm sorry. And to hear so, that. so I, uh, I just, felt like, you know, I needed to, to put some things down to say I was here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I started keeping a journal then. Um, and then of course in my job, I've, I've always done a lot of scientific writing and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed it more earlier in my career than I do now. Um, it's not that I don't enjoy the writing. I just don't enjoy the re- how rigid scientific writing is because you've got this certain pattern that you've got to stick to. Um, and, you know, but I guess it does kind of teach, teach you to write with brevity, you know, (laughs) um, and of course none of us are quite as brief as we need to be probably in our writing. But, um, (laughs) but then when I became a County agent, I, um, was responsible for a newswife newspaper column about twice a month. And, um, that kind of gave me more freedom in, in my writing. And I was able to kind of weave, you know, it, I would have a topic that I wrote on, you know, it may be like one week, it may be, you know, taking care of your roses or something. <laughs> and the next week <laughs> it may be growing a garden, you know, for tomato garden or something. Um, but I was able to weave some personal stories into those. Um, and there were even a few times where I, I wove in some, uh, some episodes of the Andy Griffith show <laughs> into those. And, and, uh, I got a lot of positive feedback when I was uh, writing that column. And, uh, that kind of gave me the confidence to maybe try a little bit more with it. And, um, I ended up, um, probably the the biggest writing project I've taken on was I wrote a book about the history of pecans. Um, that kind of came about because I had a um, my predecessor that was in this role before me um, had this. He left me this big box of old material from like the early 1900s. Um, you know these letters of different pecan growers wrote back and forth to each other and um, all these little pamphlets and, and uh, they used to do, there, there used to be a lot of farm journal type things out there that a lot of farmers would take. And some of these were devoted specifically to nut production. And uh, there were a lot of those in there. Um, so, you know, reading through that and looking through all that stuff, I, I, there were all these cool little stories uh, surrounding pecans. Um, and I'd heard some of them before. Um, but there are all these stories here and there, but there was not 
they were not kind of brought all together in one place. And there was nothing that I could find that really gave a, what I thought was a good history of, of the pecan, uh, just in one piece of work. Um, so I started putting that together and it took me probably about three years or so to, to get it written. And seems like it took longer than that to get it published. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, university of Alabama ended up, uh, university of Alabama press ended up publishing that. And, um, you know, that, that was great. Um, after that, I kind of started experimenting a little bit with some, some essays here and there. And mainly with the idea of just getting my thoughts down for my kids, for, for posterity, you know. And um, along the course of doing that, I got a couple of those published. Um, nice. And one day decided to, uh, to start putting those on a website or a blog um, just to kind of have them out there. And then that kind of has since led to some more writing opportunities. So, um, I don't know. It's just something I enjoy doing and, uh, you know, it's, it's been fun and and I really enjoy seeing people's responses to them sometimes. Nice. Yeah. One thing I learned, a lesson I learned very early in college, I had a journalism professor. My major was journalism. Uh, My professor said writers write. And as simple as that is, yeah. It's, it's a fact. <laughs> like You don't have to have a degree in journalism to be a writer. Yeah. If you write, you're a writer. Yeah. You can have a degree yeah. in journalism, and if you don't write, you're not a writer. Right, so that's right. It's, and, it's as um, simple as that. And I think, you know, sometimes you hear a lot of uh, a lot of writers, you know, you listen to other podcasts with writers and, and stuff, and, and you hear a lot of them say, you know, you know, I just, I can't help it. It's just what I do. I have to get it out. And, you know, as often as you hear that, I mean, it's, it's true. <laughs> I mean, if, if you, yes. if you write, if you're a writer and you enjoy writing, whether anybody ever sees it or not, you have to just get it down. And, uh, that's kind of an interesting thing about it to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, growing up, I was extremely introverted. So writing was my, was my voice. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm still introverted it, and, and in yeah, my, so. In my role, in my job, you know, um, because my job now is pretty much to go out and talk to people <laughs> about pecans. And, and like right now, we're in the middle of, you know, all through February and March, we do uh, production meetings, pecan production meetings in the different counties throughout Georgia. And, uh, you know, so most days I'm on the road. Uh, and speaking at some lunch meeting to a group of farmers about pecans. And um, my wife really can't believe that that's what I do because she still <laughs> sees me as a little socially awkward. <laughs> you know? and, uh, um, but, you know, I, I've kind of learned to overcome that for the job. But, but you know, Absolutely. it takes a lot. It drains, as you know, being an introvert, when you yes. talk to people all day long, You'd come uh, home and take just, a nap. It just drains you, you know. So, Absolutely. so I got to have that downtime when I get home. So Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the things, uh, actually, my wife and I had a conversation about this a couple of days ago. Um, the main difference between an introvert and an extrovert is how you gain energy. So yes. an introvert gains energy from being alone. And an yep. extrovert gains energy from being with people yeah. and communicating yeah. with people, interacting with people. So do you talk to the trees when you're out there in the orchard? 
Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you just talk and they're there, or do you talk to them? Uh, I talk to them. If if one's giving me a problem or something, I kind of have to let it know. <laughs> you know, after if they have a good year, I tell them I appreciate it and I expect them to do it again next year. You know. <laughs> well, what kind of people talk about house plants needing communication to to grow mm-hmm. and thrive? Do you actually see any? difference after you communicated with your trees no not really (laughs) (laughs) i do it more i thought we were going to go in an esoteric direction here and (laughs) but no we're just like to the grind i I saw a thing uh the other day (laughs) on on twitter talking about uh just these studies that have shown that that plants uh respond well uh they could they've documented a physiological response to to music you know, I was thinking, well, I hope I hope mine like uh, like things like R.E.M. and Neil Young and Pearl Jam and <laughs> Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings. <laughs> you already listed five groups and you didn't mention Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah, Atticus will be disappointed you didn't mention them first and the monkeys, yeah, too. They're on there for sure. <laughs> yeah, my trees love Tom Petty. <laughs> okay you'll be happy to hear that yeah okay so what are some of your favorite books and who are your some some of your favorite authors oh uh, well probably um my my favorite book of all time remains where the red fern grows by wilson rawls i think every kid you know certainly of our generation probably read that in fifth grade or so. Uh, that's kind of where I was exposed to it first. And, and I probably, I literally probably read that book 10 or 12 times within the first two years that I discovered it. Hmm. <laughs> and um, I don't know how many times I've read it. I still, every now and then, you know, about every three or four years, I'll read it again. Um, but I just really, that book just, I really... Uh, connected with that book and it the whole story just kind of felt like it was written for me (laughs) you know um and that was you know more as in childhood that that became my favorite book um still is certainly toward at the top of my list but kind of right along there with that um is a book by wendell berry uh called jay bear crow and it's about a uh a town barber in this small town uh, that Barry has created and, and uh, is in a lot of his fiction. Um, man, I could go into a lot more detail about it, but there, there's so much more to it. But it just, um, I couldn't just, my words would not do it justice. You would have to, to read mm-hmm. it, but it's it's just a very, deep book and I've, I've read it a couple of times um the last time i read it it just i got a lot more out of it i loved it the first time i read it but it was just something totally different to me the second time i read it and it just kind of spoke to where i want to be in life <laughs> you know or who i want to be wow. in life and um so those two are kind of at the top of my list i also uh love john steinbeck hemingway um recently i've been reading a lot of uh jim harrison um you know a lot of different a lot of different stuff i, I discover new new authors all the time yep 
Yep. Gotta, I'm gotta, gotta, here. There's one I'm, by this guy named Melvin Edwards in Texas that I, I'm still trying to get to that on my to be read to be read. Yes, list. there are actually two. I'm pointing <laughs> yeah. here at the books behind That's my right. head. So I there are actually two there. that you you got to get to. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll send those to you if you want. If you are interested yeah, in reading them at some point, I'd love to read them about my family here in Texas. It'd be fascinating. So are are those those are your favorite authors? Um, and does do you have a you mentioned two books? Can you mm-hmm. round it out to five? Can you give us a um, list of five? Probably so. Let me see. So so where the red fern grows, Jaber Crow, um. Aldo Leopold's um, Sand County Almanac would be would be definitely in in the top three. Um, let's see, Old Man in the Sea, you know, by, by Hemingway mm-hmm. would be one, and uh, probably was Steinbeck, um, Grapes of Wrath, probably, you know. Okay, those yeah. those are good options. Those are classics that high school students hate. So yeah. those are good. <laughs> those are good options. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now for something completely different. Mm-hmm. So what is it about the Andy Griffith show that you still watch it almost daily after you forty years after you you've seen every episode? Yeah, yeah. So I, I started watching that as a kid, uh, of course. Uh, you know, because I grew up, you know, in the late. Late 70s, early 80s, you know, and, and still now, you know, that we have the reruns were on TV all the time. And um, so I, start, I watched them every day and, uh, you know, pretty quickly saw every episode. And um, like, I, like you said, I still watch it every single day. <laughs> and um, and, it's, and my, that's another thing about me that my wife can't understand. Why do you want to keep – you've seen all these a thousand times. Why do you <laughs> want to watch these every day? And it's it's not really so much about the plot of the show now to me. It's not about um, not knowing what's going to happen. It's it's just about the feeling, you know. I guess it's, it's a little bit of nostalgia, I guess, is what it is. But um, – you know, it's just about the whole feeling in that show. You know, um, Andy is just a—he's a friend to everybody in that town. Um, there's a lot of weird characters in that town, and he very, <laughs> he very gracefully um, gets them through a lot of their problems. <laughs> yeah, and, it's definitely a lot of weird characters. That, yeah. Starting with with his deputy Barney Five. With Barney, yeah. Think about Ernest T. Bass and yeah. Floyd and yeah. Otis. <laughs> and it's really just the whole sense of community in that show that I like, and that and I think that's something that I have always wanted in life is that sense of community, you know, and and you know if I can't find it anywhere else, I find it in that show. So <laughs> you, you never get tired of it? Um, not really. I mean, I find myself sometimes it'll be on and I may not be paying close attention to it. And then all of a sudden I'll kind of look up and it'll catch me. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is about it, but um, no, I, I never seem to get tired of it. So uh, what's your wife, favorite? What's your favorite keep, episode of the show? Um, my favorite episode is the one called Man in a Hurry, where uh, there's a guy that uh, kind of a big, big wig that gets uh, kind of stranded in Mayberry on a Sunday. 
his car breaks down as he's traveling through Mayberry and he uh, keeps trying to get it fixed and doesn't understand that nothing happens in Mayberry on a Sunday and he can't get it fixed. <laughs> and, um, it sounds like the town where I went to college. <laughs> yeah. And uh, finally he gets it fixed and then he doesn't want to leave. So, <laughs> um, but uh, just that whole, that episode to me just kind of encapsulates everything that I like about the show. You know, you see a little bit of all of it there. That's awesome. I, I enjoyed the show too. I haven't seen it as much as you have. And I, I don't think I've seen every episode even once, but I've yeah. seen a lot of the episodes and maybe I need yeah. to catch up. I actually tricked my uh, family one, one uh, summer for vacation. Uh, when my girls were younger, we, we went to, uh, we don't want to go to Washington DC, you know, to, to show them Washington DC and the Capitol and go to the Smithsonian and see, see all the things you see in Washington DC. And uh, we, we decided to drive up and it just happened to, you know, one route we could take was through North Carolina and we could go kind of up into northern North Carolina, uh, go through Mount Airy where uh, Andy Griffith, you know, is his hometown. And the whole town is kind of, uh, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's kind of all, uh, whole got a whole Mayberry theme to it. So... I tricked them into to going through there, and we spent the night there, you know, on our first leg of the journey. Yeah. Um, so, got to see all So, the, was it all you you hoped it would be? Yeah, I, I told my wife, you know, when I retire, what I want to do is uh, I want to move up here to Mount Airy and get a job driving the squad car, driving tourists around in the squad car, because they, they had the little Mayberry squad car that tourists can take rides in. <laughs> so that sounded like the perfect retirement. Yeah, you you probably work for free doing that job, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last questions here I've got for you. All right. All right, how many courses do you teach during the during the school year and do those classes interfere with your Andy Griffith watching? Well, oddly <laughs> enough, my aversion to teaching when I was uh, work, working on my masters had stayed with me through my <laughs> through my career and I, I actually don't do any teaching my my, my okay. appointment I've, I'm 65% extension and 35% research so the teaching that I do is just teaching farmers uh, and then I do research um, I do do guest lectures and classes occasionally um, but I don't have any classes that I'm responsible for I have graduate students that I you know train and mentor um and that, that get their degrees on, you know, working with me um, on, on different research projects. But um, as far as classes, I, I don't have to teach any classes just because of the nature of my appointment. So it sounds like you wrote Andy Griffith into your contract. Is yeah. That what you did? Yeah. I had to have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but where I'm based, I'm not based on the University of Georgia main campus in Athens. I'm based in, in Tifton, Georgia, which is, um, there's a research, University of Georgia research station here, and that, that's where I work. And then um, there's very little teaching done here. There's some, uh, there was a teaching program established, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but it's still mostly a research uh, facility. Okay. Well, that's a, a good way to wind it up. So, um, Dr. Lenny Wells, I appreciate you being here today. It's, I've enjoyed these stories of pecans and books and Andy Griffith. It's, 
sort of an unusual route, but this, this has been fun for me. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too, Melvin. Thanks for having me on. So thanks a lot. So our guest today has been Dr. Lenny Wells, a professor of horticulture at the University of Georgia. Professor Wells, thank you for joining me on the show, and I've enjoyed this conversation, and we'll continue to follow you on Twitter so that we can gang up on Atticus Finch, who knows who he is, the one there in Georgia. Sounds good. Go dogs. <laughs> Hook them. All right, that's it for this episode of Stories from Real Life. Join us again next time for another great storytelling journey. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.